this episode of our Construction Law Back to Basics podcast. And this is a series of podcasts by Stevens and Bolton Construction and Engineering Team. Um, and it's designed to provide listeners with an overview of the core construction law principles you need to be aware of and um, throughout the key stages of a construction project. Whether you are procuring a professional team or looking to pursue a claim, our series of podcasts hopes to provide you with a succinct, summary of the practical points that need to be at the forefront of your mind as a project moves from conception to, to completion. I'm Johnny Farrell, an associate at M. Stevens & Bolton, and I'm joined today by Gwilym Evans to discuss managing the contract, getting contract administration right. Thank you, Johnny. So in today's podcast, we'll be looking at how to effectively manage a construction contract. So we're going to touch on payment in the construction contract, uh, the process for applying for additional time money, the role that a contract administrator may have and the importance of notices under a contract. And uh, in the previous episode, it's worth noting that myself and uh, my colleague Chris discussed the impact of changes and who can be responsible for the impact of that on the uh, time and money. And that leads conveniently into today's topic, which, which is uh, looking at uh, how you can actually deal with those situations. Basically, what are the uh, tools available? So um, over to you, Johnny, where would you like to start? Yeah, so um, well, firstly, we'll touch on um, payment mechanisms. So um, firstly, payment in construction contracts can seem slightly convoluted. It's not mm -hmm. as simple as, um, you know, submitting an invoice and getting paid. And uh, this is because of the Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act from 1996, um, which is known as, and I'll refer to now, from now on as um, the Construction Act. So the Construction Act requires um, a number of things for payment terms in construction um, to be compliant. So, Gwilym, what does a construction contract need to have in order to be compliant with the Construction Act? Yeah, so you and I know that there are a number of features that uh, a construction contract has to have for it to be compliant with the aforementioned Construction Act and uh, the things that we'll be looking for whenever we're uh, either reviewing a contract or preparing one is to make sure it has the right to stage payments, assuming that it's not a single payment contract, which are incredibly rare. Uh, requirements for an adequate payment mechanism, uh, one that's complied with the Act. Provisions for the serving of notices, and um, uh, this would include payment notices, default payment notices, and pay less notices, uh, which will discuss a bit more in a second. Uh, and also the Construction Act requires the contract to have uh, a notified sum given by a certain date and a statutory right for, usually the contractor, a statutory right for the contractor to suspend performance for non-payment. Uh, so uh, yeah. uh, anything I've missed there, Johnny? Yeah, so I think it's important um, to note here that um, if the payment mechanism in the contract um, doesn't comply with the Construction Act, then the um, scheme for construction contracts applies. <clears throat> and effectively, um, this implies terms to fill any gaps or replace the non-compliant parts um, in, the, in the contract it, itself. So, Gwilym, um, what is the payment mechanism under a, say, a JCT design and build contract? Yeah, so taking that as, a, as an example, um, uh, first thing I would note in the process is under the JCT contract, the contractor gets to make what's called an interim payment application, where it will uh, the contractor will say this is the sum that 
it considers is due uh, on, on a certain date as stipulated or should be stipulated by the contract and the basis of how it's come to that figure. And this is effectively the contractor's um, precursor to their invoice. It, 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 uh, basically, from the contractor's point of view, what will be in their invoice will be the same as their interim payment application, or certainly they hope so. And it's worth mentioning that uh, this interim payment application is actually a um, key innovative feature of the JCT and most written contracts are also follow this format. It's not something the Construction Act uh, specifically uh, requires that there be, although if you read it as lawyers, it, it does seem to anticipate that there will always be some sort of early uh, application stage. Now, the next one will be a bit more familiar to everyone. It's the fact that there is a due date. And this is seven days, this is using the Construction Act, seven days after the interim payment application or relative interim valuation date, if you have one in your contract. And again, following the Construction Act within five days after, sorry, the JCT design and build, within five days after the due date, the employer has uh, the ability to put in a payment notice to the contractor. In fact, it's more than the ability to put in a payment notice. It's actually required to put in a payment notice, stating the sum it considers due, and again, the basis as to how the employer has got to that figure. Uh, then after that, if the employer suddenly decides they want to pay less than the amount um, that was either in the interim payment application or their own payment notice, then they have to provide, or they not have to again, but they have the option to provide a payless notice. And this payless notice can state that the sum that is due to the contractor um, will be less than what was stated previously. And the reason for that is um, uh, the fact that if the employer had failed to put in a payment notice, they are not then bound by the interim um, payment application, which under the JCT that becomes the payment notice, it, it still has the pay less notice to fall back on. Yeah. Um, and then there's the final date for payment, which is when the actual money should be paid to the contractor, which will be whatever was the notified sum, which will depend on the aforementioned notices and, and in particular what was in any pay less notice. Now, you and I, Johnny, know that um, the the timings of this process can be played with um, to a certain extent to fit the needs of the parties but broadly that's the process under a jc design to build contract yeah so going back to um the payment certificate and the pay less notice does this effectively give the employer two bites at the cherry if they want to pay less than what the contractor has applied for yeah yeah absolutely correct and, and to be fair this is something that people do um have trouble with perhaps when they come to yeah. construction contracts in general and the JCT first time, which is, um, is you put in your interim application saying you want X amount of money, uh, the due date comes by, the, the, the parties put their heads together and discuss, the contractor puts in their payment notice or fails to put in their payment notice and then the uh, contractor will be forgiven for thinking well either the employer's put in a payment notice which broadly agrees with what I've put in or is close enough that I'm not bothered or actually hasn't put anything in which case great what my application has said I'm due is what I'm I will get paid in theory um, but actually no there is that that sort of uh, second safety net for an employer to potentially pay less. So unfortunately, if you're the contractor, you don't have to wait just once, you have to check twice whether you're actually gonna be paid what you hope you were gonna be paid in that particular interim period. 
but conversely as an employer if you if you know information comes up late in the day or you realize you know you've made a mistake uh, in terms of uh, the payment process you do have that second chance to correct it before it becomes a, a sum that's contractually payable and with with the sting attached to it that um uh, the the contractor might suspend works if you don't make that payment. And so I, th- I think we should um, move on to um, additional additional money. So um, would, or we should discuss if a contractor wants to apply for more money. Um, so in an unamended JCT design and build, um, assuming that the um, fluctuation provision, provisions haven't been used, it's what's known as a fixed price contract, also known as a lump sum contract. And this means that there's a single price um, which is agreed before the work begin. Um, and if the actual cost of the work exceeds that sum, the contract has to bear those additional costs. However, it is possible for the contractor to, contractor to apply for further money if a relevant matter occurs. Yeah, correct. So um, what, uh, so basically that means that the contractor can apply for additional cost that it has incurred during the course of the contract that is part of the original fit, uh, sum in the, that was stated in the contract yeah. um, uh, and but uh, I assume it can only do so uh, in certain circumstances that we need to flesh out yeah yeah that, that that's correct so um the JCT um, allows the contractor to apply for um, lost and expense in um, certain defined circumstances so namely if the employer delays in giving possession of the site or if the progress of the work is, has or is likely to be affected by what's known as a relevant matter and these relevant matters include um, variations or changes by the employer instructions from the employer or delay in getting development development um, control permissions or requirements and um, all these relevant matters are listed at M clause 4.21 of a JCT design and build contract. Yeah, I'd just like to pause there just to mention it to, to the list that uh, um, those are sort of the standard default um, mechanisms or criteria for being able to claim additional money. Um, and you do have to have them or if you have suffered additional costs as a contractor, you have to have something which you can um, uh, hook on to uh, as being the grounds that you're entitled to claim extra money because otherwise if you just put it into your interim application likely is it will be taken out again um, and while there are um, sensible suggestions for what criteria should um, fall within the the items that can allow additional loss and expense um, uh, in the JCT contract it is very common for parties to add or take away from those criteria Exactly. or add restrictions to that to um, uh, facilitate basically what's been agreed between the parties. You know, is this, if I'm the employer and I delay you in the works, well, okay, you know, you should have um, uh, uh, additional loss. But if it's something for which we agree you would be responsible for, then even though you contract to have, in reality, incurred additional costs that uh, were not factored into the original contract sum, unfortunately, you are not entitled to those, uh, those additional costs. Um, well, it's also worth mentioning that uh, uh, even if even if you've got um, something which you believe as a contractor, you believe does entitle you to a loss and expense, it doesn't automatically mean you can get it. Um, I believe there are uh, there are additional steps to go through. Yeah, exactly. So it isn't a um, automatic process. Um, the JC contract itself sets out the procedure. Um, so firstly, the um, contractor must notify the employer as soon as the likely effect of a relevant matter becomes apparent. 
And with this notice, notice um, the contractor must state the likely effect. Um, and then the contractor should submit, again, as soon as reasonably practical, um, its initial assessment on the loss and expense occurred and um, likely to occur. And um, they should also submit any information as reasonably necessary um, for the employer to ascertain the loss and expense. Yeah, so it's um, it, there's an element of justification needed um, by the contractor and, and an element of reasonableness, at least uh, as under an unamended JCT. And I think under the JCT, yes, under within 28 days of receipt of the initial assessment from the contractor, it's the employer who then has to go back and notify the contractor of what um, it considers is the loss and expense that's incurred um, by reference to the information that's provided to it. So yes, the contractor can get extra money, um, uh, but uh, we have to also remember that um, time and money, while they are inevitably linked, under most construction contracts, they are dealt with separately, i.e. you might get time, but not money, um, yeah. Uh, Johnny, can you can you can you speak a bit to that situation? Yeah, yeah. So it's important to remember that um, both time and money are separate. Um, so um, we've we've discussed money. Um, so for time, a contractor can get an extension to the completion date, but only if the delay is caused by a relevant event. Um, so these relevant events include variations or architect or contractor administrator instructions, exceptionally adverse weather conditions, plus um, another of another of other defined events. But again, remember that they are um, separate to relevant matters. Yeah, I think it's really important to underline this um, for anyone who's unfamiliar with how uh, JCT works and, uh, and, and also most, again, most construction contracts follow the same uh, uh, methodology, which is uh, the process for getting additional time is entirely separate to the process for getting additional money or loss and expenses we refer to it now they are they might be linked so something which caused you to have additional time will also cause you to have additional money but they can be separate and um, there are um, uh, distinctions um, within the contract already in the standalone contract as to what counts for one but maybe not the other and again, parties are free to negotiate these and add or take away from the list of, of, of uh, events and whether they are for time or both time and money. Um, Johnny, uh, is there also an issue sometimes uh, in even if something falls within a relevant event that the contractor might uh, have difficulty in getting their extra time? Yeah, so um, the contract will only be able to get an extension of time if the relevant event causes a delay. Um, so if the contractor has anticipated completing before the completion date set in the contract, i.e. there's um, some float in the program, that float would be used up first, then any extension of time, and would then reflect the delay beyond the contractual completion date. So um, for example, if a relevant event occurs, um, which has an effect of 10 days, but there's um, a float of five days in the programme, the contractor would only be able to get an extension of five days. Uh, so, Gwilym, um, should we discuss how the contractor goes about um, applying for an extension of time? Yes, so um, important to get this right. If one of the listed uh, relevant events in your contract occurs and it appears that it is going to affect the completion date, there will actually be a manifest delay, then the contractor is to give notice to the employer 
and in the notice the contractor has to state the cause of the delay whether that cause falls within one of the criteria under the contract that entitle it to additional time one of the relevant events as they're titled in jct the particulars of the effects of this delay and its assessment or estimate if that's what it can manage at the time of of what that delay will cause to the completion date how, how much time after the contractual completion date does it think it will actually be able to reach uh, completion of the works uh, then uh, again under the jc design build the employer must provide its decision within 12 weeks of receiving that notice um, or before the completion date if if the completion date is is sooner than 12 weeks and the decision is basically either going to be yes it will grant an extension of time uh, for what it believes is a fair and reasonable and it is supposed to provide information as to how it is apportioned the additional time between the relevant event and other relevant events that may have occurred or the employer has to go back and say no it, it is not granted an extension yeah yeah and i, I think um, just to jump in there there's um, a couple of important points from that i think firstly um as we've just discussed, um, the process for an extension is not an automatic one. Um, it's like getting lost and expensed. Um, whilst a relevant event can occur, you need to show that it's had an impact. And then secondly, um, what fair, what is fair and reasonable is open to interpretation. Um, so there is some case law guidance, such as the case of John Barker and Portman from um, 1980. And this is an example of where what and fair and reasonable was assessed. In this case, um, the assessment was deemed to be not fair and reasonable as the person assessing had not carried out a logical analysis of the impact on the programme had and had misapplied the contract provisions and had granted extensions of time which bore no logical or reasonable relation to, to the delay caused. It was therefore held that their extension of time had not been fairly determined. And um, I think it's also um, good to note here that the process for um, applying for a extension of time is fairly similar in the standard building contract. However, the um, application is made to the contract administrator. Um, in the JCT um, design and build, it's the um, employer's agent who makes these assessments. Um, they definitely do. Um, uh, it is worth noting that, uh, uh, you know, contract administrator employees agent um these are these are labels and and you may have contracts that use different labels or similar ones and they they basically just as long as it's clear who is acting uh for the employer and filling these roles if not the employer themselves um uh also it's also worth mentioning that uh the fair and reasonable assessment uh, unless there are provisions in the contract which uh simply dictate that something is or is not something that can be considered when uh, applying for a delay what actually uh, is fair and, and reasonable you know what what a uh, um, uh, evidence you need to prove that there is or isn't a delay there is a whole field and many experts and and, and whole industry around proving those that's develops around proving those points uh, and that ties in with the um contract administrator and in my view their their independent role yeah. uh, a contract administrator you know is responsible for administering the terms of a building contract um, assuming that there is one involved and you know their role usually will be to chair meetings periodically inspect works provide instructions be there you know, variations or change orders however it's labeled under that contract 
usually they will determine the applications for um, extensions of time, although they might engage you know, various experts to assist them in that role. And also they usually have the important role of certifying whether practical completion has been met. So um, the, you know, they, they are a very important role in the process of uh, applying for additional time. Uh, John, anything you want to add? Yeah, so <clears throat> from what you've just discussed there, it seems like the contract administrator has a dual role. Um, so in some circumstances, um, they're right, required to act on the employer's behalf. And then in other circumstances, they're required to make impartial decisions. Um, under the um, design and build JCT, it's clear that the employer agent acts on the employer's behalf, but the contract administrator seems to have a dual role. Um, does this position in the um, standard building contract seem a bit of contradiction and um, these roles might conflict? Um, I think there, yeah, there is there is a danger of conflict there. There's definitely a tension and that's always existed in the industry because, you know, um, the contract administrator is fundamentally being or usually being paid by the employer. So their impartiality, you know, is is somewhat diminished from day one, although, you know, many many very reputable contract administrators out there who, who do manage to toe the line correctly um, using their frankly professional expertise. Um, I think a contract administrator is supposed to act impartially insofar as they can when they determine applications for extensions of time and loss and expense and for certifying the completion. Um, and one major benefit to an employer is actually that they have the benefit of their impartiality because um, it means that any decision that is made is less likely to be able to be challenged and overturned by the contractor, while as one that, you know, if it is uncovered, has clear bias, is more likely to um, cause troubles for the employer. Um, uh, it's also worth mentioning that I think under the design and build contract, the employer is not able to challenge the employer's uh, agent's decision although yeah. um, again what happens behind the scenes is is sometimes difficult to to eke out yeah yeah and I think it's important um to jump in here and state that for everything we've just discussed you know the extension of time and applying for loss and expense it's really important that the notices are served correctly yep absolutely uh and in fact this is probably again something which people who are new construction contracts might be surprised about, which is how important these are. Parties need to make sure that they are aware of the notice requirements set out in their contracts, um, because if they're not sent validly, then they will be deemed to not have been given at all. So even if you you did send it and it's quite clear the other side were aware of what was in your notice and basically what you were trying to say, legally it's just treated as if it didn't happen at all and that can have huge ramifications. So for one example, uh, in the JCT design and build contract to get additional money, the contractor must notify the employer as soon as the likely effect of a relevant matter becomes apparent. Uh, which you know can be a, a question of fact, but if the notice isn't validly given, and and it's not um, it's not uh, made clear until months down the line that there was a relevant matter, the contractor may ha not be entitled to any additional money. They may have uh, positioned themselves where they've actually lost that right, and this is why. Um, notice requirements can be so important, especially if they are uh, amended by parties to be even more strict so not yeah. as soon as likely but 
you know, within X days of the events becoming apparent, then it's a question of, well, was it apparent? Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, following notice requirements is also extremely important and um, when terminating a contract. And I think this um, very helpfully brings us to the next episode um, of our podcast series. Um, in the next episode um, of the podcast series, myself and Lauren Melnick will be discussing how to bring a contract to a su successful conclusion. And we'll cover um, topics including practical completion, the final account process and terminate, terminating the contract. And so thank you for tuning in today and listening to this podcast. If you have any questions or would like any further information on what we've discussed, please don't hesitate to get in touch with myself or Gwilym or your usual Stevens and Bolton contact. Yeah, thank you. There's uh, uh, so much more we could discuss on this topic, but uh, obviously we try to keep it brief. And we hope you'll join us for the next podcast in our Back to Basics series. As stated before, uh, Johnny and Lauren are going to be looking at how to bring a contract to a successful conclusion, something which parties often can trip over uh, with dire consequences. So uh, don't, don't fail to tune in for that one. Thanks Definitely. very much. Definitely. That just leaves me today. Thank you again for listening and to wish you all a very good day. Goodbye. Goodbye.